Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Samuel Goldman. He teaches political science at George Washington University, where he is also the executive director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom. He's the author of God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, but he has a new book. It's our topic today. It is entitled, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. Uh, welcome, Professor Goldman. Thank you for having me, Mark. All right. What is, we're going to, we jump on this show, we jump right into the book. What is the popular misunderstanding of the phrase e pluribus unum? I think that it's usually understood um, as a promise that Americans of different backgrounds and origins and affiliations and tastes will be unified into a cohesive American people. Um, and this is an understanding of the phrase um, that became particularly popular around the middle of the 20th century. Um, but if you look back to its early uses in the 18th century, uh, it actually means something different. It's, it's a reference um, to the union um, of, the, of the states. And I think that one of the challenges of our time um, is that we've shifted from regarding our country as an institutionalized political community um, into a cohesive nation state. And I, I just don't think that our institutions can bear the weight of that expectation, hmm. nor do I think that it corresponds um, to much of our history. And that this has filtered down into sort of the ordinary sense of regular people, the man on the street uh, of what America is is supposed to be. Is that right? Well, I think I think that I think that's right. Um, and again, my instinct is always to look at these things um, historically. It's only um, in the late 19th or early 20th century um, that people began to use the term America um, as a reference to the country. Um, they did they did speak of uh, Americans or the American people. But they would refer to the United States more often um, as the Union or the Republic. And that timing isn't an accident, because this is the great age of European nationalism, um, when throughout Europe and throughout the world, um, uh, political communities are, are claiming to speak in the name of a generalized uh, people, and, and Americans um, wanted the same thing. And in certain ways, that, has, that was a healthy 
development, um, but it also introduced uh, dangers. And I, I think those dangers are evident today uh, when we live in really an extraordinarily large country. We have more than um, the, there are more than 330 million inhabitants of the United States. And we expect a degree of consensus um, that we just aren't likely to accomplish. Yeah, and, and you actually acknowledge uh, a degree of skepticism, maybe for this reason, just sheer size, that we can ever again enjoy a, quote, shared identity and purpose, or at least a, a largely shared identity and purpose. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I try to show in the book um, is that the period that many of us even today uh, look back on fondly as, as a moment of relative cohesion and solidarity um, was a very unusual and really rather brief period. Um, people tend to refer um, to America as they experienced it between about 1941, uh, so the, the beginning of the Second World war um, through uh, the early part of the 1960s. Um, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy is often sort of an endpoint um, for this narrative. And, and I don't deny um, that during that period, um, not, of course, there was not unanimity. No one has ever agreed on, on everything. But there, there really was um, a, an unusually high degree of political consensus and social uh, social cohesion, um, but it didn't last for very long. And more importantly, it was the product of circumstances that can't be repeated, um, including the pressure of mobilization um, for two international ideological conflicts, uh, first the Second World War um, and then the Cold War, um, immediately following. Um, unprecedented prosperity, uh, which depended partly um, on the physical destruction of our economic rivals, and also um, a, a sense of America as the leader of the free world and obligated to uphold certain principles or values um, in a, a more consistent, more consistent way. Yeah. Um, and those conditions just don't don't exist anymore. So I think um, where we are now more closely resembles the situation at the end of the 19th century, uh, when some of the same concerns that have become familiar um, about the effect of immigration, um, about the absence of shared culture, about the corruption yeah. of political and social institutions uh, was was widespread. Now, now, you have what I think is a pretty far-reaching thesis here that the problem is really not so much disunity among the people, but the failure or weakening of the institutions that, quote, express and embody disagreement. That there isn't, there isn't sort of a, a, I don't know, a filtering mechanism or an, or an absorbing mechanism to take in existing disagreements and not really make them go away necessarily, but to, to manage them. Can you, can you give us an example of that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that 
one of the most important examples is the atrophy um, of Congress uh, relative to both the the other two constitutional branches of government, um, but also the the so-called administrative state or or fourth branch. Um, Congress is set up for the specific purpose of manifesting and negotiating disagreement. Um, That's why uh, the members of Congress, um, or at least the members of the House of Representatives, are the only ones in the original Constitution elected directly by the people, and and the same um, is now true of members of uh, the the Senate. And the expectation is that they're going to disagree, because they represent different interests, uh, different factions, different regions, and and so on. Um, A consequence of the shift of political authority to unelected officials nominally responsible to the president is that it has concentrated and nationalized all of our disputes. Um, And rather than political outcomes being determined through public negotiation um, between representative, uh, representative bodies, too many decisions are made by too few people um, behind closed doors. And I think that really raises the, the temperature of our politics um, in ways that have been on, on vivid display recently. Um, it's been joked uh, on, on social media that now every presidential election is the most important of our <laughs> right. lifetime. Right. right. And that's and, you know, and that's funny because that that probably can't literally be true, but it, it captures this sense, which is widespread on the left as well as the right, that the stakes of the occupant of the White House are in some way existential. And that leads to an oscillation um, between overreaching by the in, the incumbent president or party and the inevitable backlash. And we seem to be into the backlash phase already of the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, so what, I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that maybe we need to try something else. Um, and that something else, um, I, I think, does involve um, the revitalization of Congress, but also a revitalization of the uh, civil society or or mediating institutions that are much better suited to give people a sense of purpose and meaning and efficacy. And what, what I try to emphasize about those institutions is that they're not about consensus or agreement. They express a particular identity, whether it's a a religious community um, or a labor union that represents a particular economic interest or or some other goal-oriented association. And if people can't find the guidance and purpose that they want for, for quite legitimate reasons in those places, they're going to turn to national politics um, in ways that I think are counterproductive and often quite dangerous. You refer to, quote, the new nationalists. Uh, who, who are those people? What do they want? So I, I, when I, I talk about the new nationalists, I'm talking about 
a group of loosely affiliated intellectuals who've um, become prominent um, mostly on the right, although there are also a few on the center-left um, over the last five or six years, inspired um, by uh, events including Brexit um, and, of course, the election of Donald Trump, but also some parallel movements um, in Europe and elsewhere. And these are, these are people whom I take to be saying that the most productive political and in some ways social strategy, um, again, especially on the right, but in, in some versions also on the left, is to emphasize the interests of the nation as a whole and national identity as, um, as the dominant identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, they also advance or at least gesture toward a, an historical argument that this was this actually was the case until relatively um, relatively recently. So I should say that you know I'm not altogether unsympathetic to some of um, the policy arguments uh, that people associated with this movement have made, um, whether to do with trade or the regulation of technology companies or immigration. Um, on the contrary, I, I think they've done a real service by asking hard questions about the current state of law and policy in these areas. Um, but I just don't think that in this country, which is different to Britain or France or Hungary or Poland or Israel, that a widely shared and thick or, or demanding um, sense of national community and purpose is going, um, is going to work. You know, I, I have two questions on, on the, the idea of covenant. Uh, one, one leads to the next. First of all, you refer to something called the New English Covenant. What was that? So I should say that New English Covenant is, is my term, um, not one found in the sources. But no, it, it's no. the way that I describe um, the idea that the American people is a, is a chosen nation comparable to the biblical people of Israel. And this is an idea um, that has roots in um, the Puritan experience, um, although it's important to remember that they did not see themselves as Americans in the way that we do and had had really no notion of founding an independent um, political community. So it's important to to see them in their own time rather than only uh, looking backward from the present. Mm -hmm. Um, But these ideas are picked up um, and adapted to a more familiar purpose um, during the War of Independence and in the early Republic, um, when they came to stand for a vision of the United States as, in effect, um, an Anglo-Protestant nation that would be defined culturally, um, if not politically, um, by uh, New England um, and New England-based institutions that, that derived from 
the Puritan experience. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You characterize covenantal models as nicely distinct from ideological nationalism and blood and soil nationalism. What, what, what is the advantage there? Well, so on the one hand, um, the emphasis in this way of understanding what it means to be an American or what it means to be um, part of a national community isn't defined by narrow political principles. Um, so unlike what I call the, the creedal nationalism of the 20th century, there's no demand that you affirm a particular conception of individual rights or a particular attitude um, toward the written toward the written constitution. Um, rather, um, emphasis, the emphasis is on membership in a group of people um, who see themselves as, as bound together horizontally by, by mutual obligation, but also vertically. They have a relationship um, with God who calls them to a particular purpose. And that relationship can be critical um, as well as inspiring. You know, in the, in the prophetic tradition, um, God or his spokesman often points out the sin of the nation, um, mm -hmm. rather than merely praising or, um, or encouraging it. Um, on the other hand, there is uh, a risk of, of exclusion, and this too is, is clear in the biblical models, where membership um, in the people of Israel um, has a quasi-ethnic com component. Um, and that's dealt with by permitting um, outsiders to join, um, but under fairly rigorous um, conditions. So in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, this, this idea is depicted in the story of, of Ruth the Moabite, um, who joins uh, the people of Israel um, on the condition that, as she puts it, um, your, your God will be my God, and where, where you go, I will also dwell. So it's, it's, it's a full commitment to membership in just one people at a time, um, rather than merely a political or economically convenient arrangement. Yeah. Do you think the melting pot idea 100 years ago was effectual? And but but no no longer. No. I I think its its effects varied considerably depending who we are talking about. Um, one of the things I point out in the book is that the melting pot image, which we associate with the port and industrial cities of the early 20th century, was originally used in a more Jeffersonian agrarian idiom. And, and the thought was that by going out west, immigrants and old stock Americans 
um, would transform themselves, sort of mix themselves in, in the soil, and a new people um, would, would grow up. Hmm. And I think that, that that really did happen to some people uh, and, and places. Um, the focus at that time in the early 19th century uh, was on largely um, uh, Northern European immigrants um, who were sometimes um, uh, not uh, not Anglo, sometimes not Protestant, um, but did over the decades and, and the century come to be seen as as fully um, as fully American. It worked less well for the so-called new immigrants. Um, of uh, the second half of the 19th century, who came mostly from um, Eastern and Southern Europe, and even less well than that uh, for uh, for Asian immigrants um, and for African Americans who weren't immigrants at all, um, but had been present um, uh, through no choice of their own um, before uh, the founding of the Republic. So, so I argue that. This idea of the melting pot as, as producing a unitary American people that at some point in the future um, will be comparable to the great nations of Europe didn't work out uh, quite as was anticipated. Mm-hmm. And the rise of the idea of, of the creed was a response to that failure. Okay. Uh, you, you spend a lot of time talking about the creed, uh, especially as it can sort of consolidated uh, in the in the twentieth century, uh, you mentioned G.K. Chesterton worried that this creed might displace Christianity as sort of core of the American identity. Uh, was he right to worry about that? Well, I, I think Chesterton was right to worry um, that. An understanding of America as devoted to certain universal and even transcendent purposes um, has has a risk of becoming um, a sort of ersatz religion in which it is no longer the God of the Bible, um, as in the covenantal model, but rather America itself that becomes the ultimate category. Mm-hmm. Of reverence and um, and devotion, um, and the reason I, I use that quote from Chesterton is, is people often use his phrase um, uh, "America is a nation with the soul of the church" as if it were praise, but it's really not praise. Um, Chesterton fears um, not only that it can lead to a kind of idolatry, but also that this is a fundamentally intolerant understanding of what it means to be an American, because you are always being subjected to an ideological test. Um, And there's reason to think that um, Chesterton was right insofar as we keep seeing um, appeals through the 20th century and up to the present um, to the category of un-Americanism. You know, how can you be how can you be Um, Mm un-American? the English don't talk about being un-English. Um, the right. French don't talk about being un-French. There's something distinctively American um, about about this. Sam, do do Europeans? I mean, President Obama loved the phrase. That's not who we are. Do European leaders speak this way? 
I think they they don't rely on that rhetoric um, in the way we do. I you know I can't say that they they never speak that way, and certainly um, when um, they've they've indulged in a more sort of archetypal form of blood and soil nationalism, they have indeed made distinctions about who we are and who we aren't. Um, but I don't think that that European statesmen use an ideological category in quite that way. Um, or if they do, it's because they've been heavily influenced um, by American models since, since World War II um, and talk much more like Americans than they used to. Well, what role did the wars play in the conception of the creed? So I think the, the creedal idea has always been associated um, with military mobilization, going back to, to the War of, of Independence. Um, and that's partly because when you have a large group of people who disagree about many things, you need to find something that's going to include all of them. And appealing to political principles um, has been a way to do that, um, in an American population that has always been religiously, um, uh, culturally, and ethnically pluralistic, or at least um, relatively mm -hmm. so. So these ideas emerge in the War of Independence, then they go um, into abeyance for a while, they, they reappear in the controversies about slavery that lead to the Civil War, then again they go out of fashion, um, and they reemerge in the 20th century um, in connection with the First World War. When they serve to give an Americans a justification for doing something that we had never done before, uh, which was to fight um, an overseas war against uh, enemies that had not directly attacked the United States. And I think it's, it's in that form, creedal nationalism uh, becomes the, the default understanding of American national identity. Um, again, there's, there's yeah. a, a return to normalcy, as, as um, President Harding famously said after the Second World War. Um, but in the late 1930s, as the Roosevelt administration is beginning to try to sell the idea um, of American intervention in Europe, it returns to this rhetoric, um, partly to promote its foreign policy goals, but also to, to um, weld together the New Deal coalition, yeah. which was, again, religiously, ethnically, and culturally uh, diverse in the way that seems to uh, reward this kind of ideological abstraction. Uh, you, you, you track the creed through the century. What happened to the creed in the 60s and 70s? Well, what happens is that the creed breaks down, or rather um, the, the sort of naively uh, optimistic centrist liberalism of mid-century breaks down. And, and it breaks down um, around two issues. Um, one is foreign policy. Um, as I've described, um, the, the, the creed serves partly as a justification for international uh, military mobilization. Already during the Korean War, particularly during the Vietnam War, um, 
it becomes much more questionable whether what America is doing actually lives up to its stated, its stated values. And as these questions arise, um, intellectuals and scholars began to reinvestigate American history and, and to expose some of the, the, the senior incidents um, that had been minimized, if not exactly ignored in the past. Um, and, the, you know, the, the consequences of that reevaluation are still with us. Um, the, other, the other issue is race. Creedal nationalism uh, was strongly associated, uh, again, with this sort of centrist reformist liberalism um, that acknowledged uh, the, the crimes of slavery and the injustices of segregation, um, but held that slow incremental reform would gradually lead to the realization of the promise of the founding of the founding documents. Um, and in the later 1960s, um, in, in the wake of widespread rioting in many uh, American uh, cities, more extensive um, scholarly investigation um, of various forms of racism and, and uh, exclusion and an increasingly radicalized civil rights movement, that too became questionable. So it, I don't think that the creed exactly went away. Um, it's certainly still with us. And if you read um, the, the speeches of today's politicians, they often speak in these, in these terms. Um, but it became much harder to take the creed for granted and to claim that it dominated or defined American history, as well as extending a promise to the American future. Now, uh, well, last question, Sam, your, your title, After Nationalism. So what condition are, are we in now in, in some of the larger terms that you've laid out? I think that we are in a confused condition um, where we, we understand um, that the consensus of the past is no longer effective, um, but we still want to restore it, or, or we hope um, that there is some replacement that can do exactly the same job uh, in, um, in a different way. And I, I think that hope is particularly um, evident, uh, again, not so much on the right as on the center-left, um, where figures uh, like Mark Lilla, among others, have appealed to um, uh, a sort of renewed uh, Roosevelt-era um, na national progressivism, uh, for lack of, lack of a better term. Yeah. What I'm suggesting here is that maybe that's just not possible. Um, and rather than seeking more and more unity, um, we should think about ways to live together in disunity, um, not to the point of secession and not um, on every issue. There, there are uh, legitimate national responsibilities can, that can be addressed only by the federal government. Um, but on a whole range of concerns, um, I think we need more genuine pluralism and more genuine freedom for states, 
local communities um, and civic and religious associations to do their own thing, even if not everyone likes it. Yeah. And that returns um, to the theme you, you mentioned um, of favoring institutions of disagreement yeah. rather than pursuing an elusive consensus. The book is After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. Professor Goldman, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.